0: Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller.
1: Conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So this week, I want to talk about some things that are happening in Washington, D.C., then I believe we're going to go to Missouri, and then we're going to wrap things up with a story out of Indiana from this week, and you probably know which one that is. So let's start from the beginning. Let's talk about, unfortunately, Washington, D.C., and there's a reason. I know that for the most part, I try to avoid talking about about uh, Congress and the shenanigans that go on there, because the reality is is that it's mostly just entertainment, political theater, reality TV fodder. Okay? (laughs) And so for the most part, I just kind of ignore it. But... This is interesting what happened this week and I think we need to talk about it a little bit and then there's kind of I'll give you a reason why at the end. So the U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday voted 267 to 157 to pass a bill that redefines marriage in federal law. This is codifying a Supreme Court decision that recognized same-sex marriages. So the Respect for Marriage Act, and that's what this act is called, repeals the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which interestingly was a law signed by President Bill Clinton that recognized marriage as, quote, only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. It also defined a spouse as a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. Uh, the bill prohibits individual states from recognizing the traditional definition of marriage as a union between one man and one woman. So that's what this kind of gets down to is it's, they're trying to codify federally so that states can't do what they would like within their own borders. Uh, Democrats said, said these legal protections are necessary to protect marriage equality. Of course they said that. So, same-sex marriage is kind of already de facto federal law because of the Supreme Court's 2015 decision. Democrats reintroduced the legislation in response to Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and that was the landmark case that overturned Roe v. Wade. In that concurring opinion, Thomas said the court should revisit its uh, substantive due process precedents. Including Oberfeld. And of course, Democrats became hysterical. They've accused the Supreme Court of threatening to end same-sex marriage rights. And even this is so bizarre, interracial marriage rights, citing Thomas. And this is this is this is a black man. They're attacking a black man over this, saying that he's threatening interracial marriage rights, citing Thomas's opinion and ignoring. The court majority's opinion in Dobbs, the court majority's opinion in Dobbs, which explicitly ruled out overturning those precedents. Of course, Justice Samuel Alito, who wrote the majority opinion in the Dobbs decision, emphasized this is what he said nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. He said it, Clear, cleared everything up right there. The Bipartisan Respect for Marriage Act though, passed with unanimous support from Democrats and 47 Republicans voting in favor. While, like I said, these kinds of shenanigans in D.C. don't always draw my attention, I thought it would be important to note it for my South Carolina listeners, since this list of 47 Republicans includes our very own Nancy Mace and Tom Rice. Unfortunately, Mace has already won her primary, so she'll just be going up against a Democrat in uh, the general. But it's always, and of course, Tom Rice already he's he lost his primary and he won't be going back. But it's always good to know who betrayed us. <laughs> That's really why I'm telling you all this. I tell you all of this and the fact that the federal government is trying to attack our states' rights and what and how we can legally define marriage. And there are two Republicans from South Carolina who went along with it. And it's good to know. This bill now heads to the Senate, where at least 10 Republicans will need to join the Democrat majority to overcome the Senate's 60-vote filibuster threshold and pass the bill. So, that's the first story I wanted to cover. The second story is out of Missouri. And this is about a sheriff in Missouri who has refused to release gun owner information to the FBI even if the agency threatens to arrest him. This is Republican Scotland County Sheriff Brian Whitney, who wrote to residents in his community on Monday about the plan to audit Missouri's gun owner records. He said, As the sheriff of Scotland County, I want all my citizens to know that I will not allow, cooperate, or release any concealed carry weapon information to the FBI, even at the threat of a federal arrest. He was in an interview with Fox News and he said, point blank, I will go down with the ship if need be. God bless this man. Just look, I I think I've said this before and I think I said it recently. Cowardice is contagious. Courage is contagious. This is the kind of courage that we need from American citizens and especially from those in leadership. Whitney says the FBI planned to audit 24 counties, though nobody knows which counties in Missouri will be affected. His defiance of a potential demand from the FBI that sheriffs release information on Missourians with concealed carry permits was not the only one. So he was not the only one to defy this. Sheriffs in Howard, uh, Camden, Macon, Assange, Randolph, there was one other one, uh, Gasconade, Those counties also agreed to keep such information away from the FBI. And then to back up his letter, Whitney told Fox News he's preparing to move all that CCW information to a secure location in case the FBI threatens him with a search warrant for it. But here's the question. Why all of a sudden is this a concern? Well, first of all, Last month, there was a massive data breach in California that rele- released the detailed personal information of CCW permit holders that included names, dates of birth, gender, race, driver's license numbers, and residence a- addresses. their literal addresses, along with any criminal history that might have been included. Additionally, Data from other sites was open to public display and access. Those, some of those were uh, its registry of handguns certified for sale, its dealer records of sale, its listings of those receiving a firearm safety certificate, uh, and anyone subject to a gun violence restraining order. There was another uh, one or two. So all of this data was open to public display and access. Anybody could, could get it. The Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, exposed the danger and added to Whitney's defiance. In a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray last week, Schmidt wrote, The FBI has absolutely no business poking around in the private information of those who have obtained a concealed carry permit in Missouri. The Second Amendment rights of Missourians will absolutely not be infringed on my watch. I will use the full power of my office to to stop the FBI, which has become relentlessly politicized and has virtually no credibility from illegally prying around in the personal information of Missouri gun owners. And then he added this. If that wasn't enough, he said this. You may wonder why there is such a strong suspicion of federal agents here in the show-me state. Simply put, Missourians are hardworking, law-abiding citizens who don't need a national nanny state keeping tabs on us. But more than that, over the last couple of years, we've seen story after story of incompetence and corruption at the highest levels of the FBI. This is exactly why gun owners dislike a license being required and for the government to have any record of their owning a firearm. These two things, a justifiable distrust of government agencies, and the possibility of a data breach where their private information could be exposed and make them vulnerable. I mean, do you really want, I mean, if you lived in California or Seattle, would you really want people to know you that you own a firearm where you live? I mean, the reality is, is they would probably be a little bit afraid to come at you. But if there was enough of them that got together, they might try to steal it from you. I mean, guns and ammunition are very desired in our economy right now. They're an investment. So these folks, and these folks know that, especially criminals. Now everybody knows that you have something of value that they could break into your home when you're not there and come and get. Bad deal. Bad, bad, bad deal. On multiple fronts, we have the right to bear arms full stop. That is all the license we need. And it was that license that saved lives this past week. Let's talk about it when I come back from the break.
0: This is Bob, the producer of The Hannah Miller Show. Hannah and I would like to thank you for subscribing, favoriting, sharing, liking, and everything else you can do for a podcast that makes this podcast so successful. As you probably know, Hannah and I are both based out of South Carolina, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll find very enjoyable and educational. It's called South Carolina Politics. The topics on this show range from county council and school board all the way up to the governor. Interviews, opinions, discussions, updates, and a lot more. So check it out wherever you find your podcasts. It's called South Carolina Politics.
1: All right. Before I actually dive into this story... I have some good friends who work over at Halter, which is an equine therapy organization near the South Carolina School for the Deaf and Blind, and I had told them that I would ask any of my listeners who are interested in volunteering with a program like that um, to please reach out. They have a lot of open spots for volunteers, especially on the heels of COVID, and they need a lot of help. Out there, and they have a wonderful program. They use horses to, just, uh, to provide therapy for children. And it's a little bit, uh, it's a lot to explain just here in a in a few seconds. But if you've ever been interested in therapy, if you love kids, if you love horses, any of those things. They combine all of those things and serve our community in a wonderful way. So if you're interested in those things, I suggest that you reach out to Halter and you can reach out to me to get that number or you can just Google it and find it and just connect with them and see if there's a way or a time or day that you could go and and help and volunteer over there. So let's get back to the news, though. On Sunday evening, July seventeenth, 2022, at the Greenwood Park Mall in Indiana, a gunman opened fire in a food court. He killed three people and wounded two others. He might have murdered many more, but for the quick work of a man named Elisha Dickin, who, 15 seconds after the shooting started, pulled out his own handgun and fired 10 times, hitting the assailant 8 out of the 10 times he fired. Very impressive, especially with a handgun at 40 yards. Dickon was legally carrying a firearm under the state's constitutional carry law. And that's what I'm talking about. The Second Amendment gives us the right to bear arms, and constitutional carry laws say that. They basically just affirm the Second Amendment. We shouldn't even need it. (laughs) We shouldn't need it. But... In the day and time, age we're in, we do. And they say, you don't have to have a license. You don't have to have a training course. You don't have to have any of these things. Because of the Second Amendment, you can legally carry. And that's Indiana's law, constitutional carry. And this guy had, didn't have concealed weapons permit. Didn't, as far as I know, had no official concealed weapons training. He said in uh, an interview that his grandfather had taught him how to shoot. I imagine his grandfather is very proud of him, whether he's passed on or still alive. I don't know. But either way, probably very proud of this young man. He was hailed as a good Samaritan for saving lives. Then the next day, the Greenwood police chief added, many more people would have died last night if not for the responsible armed citizen. Let me just say this. You and I are our own first responders. You just have to look at the contrast between this situation, which was a gun-free zone, by the way. They had their little sticker up there. And I don't want to get into all of the details, but basically Indiana state law says you can carry. And so that sticker on the door didn't have authority over this young man. Okay. And so he was able to carry and he did. And he saved lives. Contrast that to what happened at Uvalde when they were in a, what I would call a soft zone, a vulnerable environment, and they had to wait for the police. And it took them over an hour to do what it took this armed citizen 15 seconds to do. It's just tragic, and it's really mind-blowing that anybody on the left, any progressive, anybody who's in favor of gun control can have these two situations that are literally back-to-back and still advocate for gun control and try to tell you that your best line of defense in a situation like this is to just wait for the police. And I'm not knocking the police because you guys know me. I have a lot of respect for the police, for our officers for our military, all of those things. But boy, oh boy, something in Uvalde is rotten. And they really dropped the ball. And no matter how much I respect these guys in general, the reality is, is and, and, and this is a cliche, but it's still true. You know, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. That was perfectly illustrated in Uvalde. And then the converse of that is perfectly illustrated by what happened in Indiana. Of course, this term Good Samaritan the police, uh, the police chief was immediately condemned by gun control advocates for, his, for that reference, for referring to Elisha as a Good Samaritan. And then one local reporter said this. He said, The term Good Samaritan came from a Bible passage of a man from Samaria who stopped on the side of the road to help a man who was injured and ignored. I cannot believe we live in a world where the term can equally apply to someone killing someone. End quote. So wait a minute. When it's put that way, who's correct? The police chief or the reporter. I liked how Lawrence Reed rephrased the question. He he asked, Did Jesus support self-defense or the taking of a guilty life to save the lives of innocents? A quick kind of recap in, uh, of chapter 10, in chapter 10 of the book of Luke, in the New Testament, Jesus tells his par- tells his parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan is judged good because when he came upon a man who was beaten and robbed, He chose of his own free will to help the injured man with his own resources. As Reed pointed out, the Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable did not commit a violent act himself. The injured man's assailants were presumably long gone. He stepped in to assist the assailed. So, strictly speaking, and he's right on this, the Greenwood police chief's reference was not entirely, it wasn't an entirely correct analogy to Elisha Dickens' action in taking down the shooter at the shopping mall. So, I'll grant that. But let's talk about the, the issue here was that this good Samaritan, that, that somebody could be good and shoot somebody. Well, what do most people define as a good Samaritan? I think most people use that phrase to describe anyone who isn't compelled to come to the aid of the innocent, but takes the initiative to do so anyway. John MacArthur describes a good Samaritan as men and women who find people in need and help them in unusual ways. Now, before I go any further, let me remind you that the point of this parable is not to teach us to help others in need but rather this is really a story about how one inherits eternal life because that is the question that initiated this entire conversation with Jesus to which this story is the conclusion. But how most people use the term Good Samaritan, not whether or not we know the actual point of the parable, is what is up for discussion here. Okay, The actual point of this parable is important. You should go study it if this is new to you but it's not necessarily pertinent to this discussion at hand. So I wanted to make that quick point. Back to my question. I'm sure there are a lot of us that would pause at this question. Did Jesus support self-defense? We think of Matthew 5, where Jesus calls on us to turn the other cheek. We think of Jesus as a man of peace and love and kindness. Now, the reporter likely shares... of this widely held pacifist view, socialist view of Jesus. The view that he would never endorse any act of violence for any purpose even if it's necessary to save lives. Here's the implication of that though. It implies that Elisha Dickon should have run for cover and allowed the Greenwood shooter to kill another dozen or two people. I don't care what you think about gun control. We all cringe at that thought. Let's consider a few verses, though. When Jesus dined at the Last Supper, he gave his disciples specific instructions, including this in Luke twenty-two thirty-six. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Right off the bat, Jesus recommends owning a weapon. <laughs> Note two things. One, He did not advise anyone, then or at any other time, to stand idly by and allow wanton slaughter of innocents. And two, neither did he advise in this moment that his disciples engage in violence. Furthermore, Jesus offered support for the threat of force to prevent the theft of property. This is found in Luke eleven twenty one. 21. Jesus said this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. This is the same Jesus who, in Luke 12, 39, says, If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. It's the same Jesus who never criticized anyone for possessing a lethal weapon such as a sword. As we already said from Scripture's record of the Last Supper, he actually supported the owning of a weapon. Though he certainly condemned the initiation of force or the impulsive and unnecessary use of it. I was so appreciative of when I was reading through uh, this article or an article by Lawrence Reed, he referred to a quote from theologian Norman uh, Geisler in J.P. Moreland's book, uh, The Life and Death Debate, Moral Issues of Our Time. It's been a while since I read that book, uh, probably since college, I think, which unfortunately is getting farther and farther away. <laughs> away. But it's so appropriate. And here's, here's their quote from that book. To permit murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. To allow a rape, when one could have hindered it, is evil. To watch an act of cruelty to children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. In brief, not resisting evil is an evil of omission, and an evil of omission can be just as evil as an evil of commission. Any man who refuses to protect his wife and children against a violent intruder fails them morally. It's a powerful way to put it. Elisha Dickin didn't have to step in and risk life and limb, but he did. He was under no legal obligation. Unlike the Uvalde shooting, where it took trained officers who had a legal obligation to protect over an hour to do what it took Dickin 15 seconds to accomplish. Dickin was compelled Not by any outward obligation, but by honor and bravery. Character traits that cannot be compelled, but must be inspired within someone and diligently taught. Elijah Dickon is indeed a good Samaritan. But more importantly, he was a loving man. Now, what do I mean by that? When Elijah Dickon drew his weapon... He attracted the attention of the assailant. He knowingly put his life on the line for everyone in that mall. John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Thankfully, Elijah's life was spared. He didn't know that when he engaged the shooter. Elijah was more than just a good Samaritan. He is the biblical definition of a loving man. Lastly, Jordan Peterson is known for saying, A harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has it under control. 8 out of 10 of Elijah's shots hit their mark within 15 seconds from 40 yards away with a handgun. I'd say that's a dangerous man with excellent control and trigger discipline, which makes Elijah Dickon a very, very good man.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com.